The Old Barn I squint up into the bright summer sun. A pigeon swoops big circles and perches in one of the tiny houses framed on the top of the big old barn. My cousin Valate and I have apples picked from the big tree out in the cow pasture weighing down the hidden pockets of our dresses. We both have long hair parted down the middle our mothers have braided tightly into top braids, braided into bottom braids. This way, it never gets too messy and it stays out of the way. Last year's school dresses are our summer play clothes as they collect dandelion stains and fade from washing and sunshine. Our brown feet and arms are a contrast to the faded ruffles of our skirts. Picking up a rock, we bust some hunks off the block of blue cow salt. The cows have licked deep crevices that I trace with my tongue, as smooth as rocks in the creek bed. I take a bite of apple, lick the salt, then rub it back and forth across the bitten part until the white flesh of the apple is shiny smooth with the salty juice, and I take another bite. Inside the old barn is cool. To the right of the old milk room is at the front of the th with three stalls built along the side wall. The sweet warm smell of hay and animals fills my nostrils as we climb the wall ladder to the second layer of the, of the barn. Old dairy equipment lay forgotten and half buried under the musty hay and years of dust. Reminders of the old days when Grandpa Ray and his kids had hand milked the cows before they grew up and built the new dairy on the hill. Grandpa Ray bought the Lions Ranch in 1952 and the old barn was old then. They say it was built almost a hundred years ago. In those days, I guess, the barnyard was still full of kids, just a different set of blackmores. Dad talks about fetching the cows for milking and their bare feet when frost covered the ground, jumping from one steaming cow pie to the next to keep his toes warm. Not sure why, but they liked to poke holes through horse buns, light one end of it on fire and suck the smoke through in long draws and try to make smoke rings. Mormons don't smoke, and Dad tells us, if you're going to suck smoke from something, it might as well be a horse bun. A cigarette doesn't look any cooler than that either. This middle level has a low ceiling and only extends to half of the barn. When Dad was a kid, the big ranch house burned down. Grandpa and Grandma Aloha converted the chicken coop into a small cabin and put up some bunk beds on this level of the barn for the older boy's bunkhouse. A big window with shutters sagging looks out over the barnyard. Another wall ladder, or rather a few old boards, are nailed between the narrow strip of wall and the 20-foot drop to the barn floor. I push up through the square hole and pull myself, belly sliding onto the satin-smooth wood floor of the hayloft. I keep one hand on the rough, weathered, 
door frame for support as I inch my toes to the edge of the gaping loading window towering way, way above the dusty barnyard and lean forward just enough to feel the flutter in my stomach and the shivers run up my spine as I watch the chickens pecking, looking like little bugs bobbing around. The back of the loft is full of second cut hay, which is already being stacked to feed the cows during the winter. Vlate and I pass a piece of cow salt back and forth between us, which we rub vigorously on our green apples and take an occasional lick. Summer is a busy time for us farmers. My brothers and cousins drive tractors, cutting and turning the sweet-smelling hay to dry. Watching them unload a semi-truck is almost as, is almost like watching a line of, of ants carrying food back to their anthill. Two of them pull the bales off the trailer, bump them end to end on the complaining chain teeth, which take them up and up to the big third story window. At the top, two of the big boys or girls wait stand facing and alternate grabbing the bales from the elevator and packing them across the polished floor to stack in the back of the barn for winter. I can drag a hay bale if I really put my, my mind to it, but a farmer my size is better help filling water jugs or helping the mothers bring lunch. A big knotted together precarious rope is tied to the third beam, which spans the width of the open side of the barn. In winter, the big old barn is full of hay and usually full of kids as well. The big boys drag bales around to make levels to swing from. Just don't break the bales is the only rule in the barn. But sometimes it happens on accident and we make a big fluffy pile to jump into and then fluff it up again for the next kid. The big kids make tunnels and mazes through the stacks of hay bales that lead into secret hidden rooms. Sometimes they are terrifyingly dark and elaborate. John Wayne and Louis L'Amour were the great narrators of our childhood games in the old barn, which could go on for days. The boys are the brave riders of the Pony Express or cowboys and Indians of the Old West. We girls are the daughters and wives who get kidnapped, die tragically in childbirth, or abandoned to raise their children while the men go on some great mission. I preferred to be Sacagawea, who got to take her baby with her and didn't have to miss out on all the fun. Occasionally, we split in two a full-on feud and cousin rivalry. All the kids join one group or the other for some standoff for territory. Sticks become guns and heroes and horses, with a few of the older boys having their own hand-carved wooden weapons. There is yelling, wrestling, shrieking, and pit prisoners being taken by one group or the other. There's lots of bam, you're dead, with no clear rules. If the older girls get too mad, they start yelling at everyone to go home or they run call one of the mothers from our uncle's telephone who lives in the White House across the barnyard. 
It's during these wild and reckless gatherings in the old barn that our best family history lessons are debated between a pack of us cousins, each of us with our own authority and God-given right to claim our history. Grandpa William Morris Blackmore was kidnapped by pirates when he was 12 years old. He grew up a cabin's boy on a ship. My cousin Walter says, with a whoop and jumps from a beam, swinging through the air to balance successfully on a bale platform. He was not kidnapped. His family was so poor that they had to give him up to go work on ships because they couldn't afford to feed all their kids. His sister Donna argues with him. No, my cousin Nancy joins the debate. He actually ran away because he knew his parents couldn't afford to take care of him, so he became an indentured servant on the ship as a cabin's boy. The captain taught him all about being a sailor and even taught him how to read and write, and he had to stay on the ship for seven years to serve his contract. He was so tough, he could climb overhand up the mass and could carry two five-gallon buckets of water straight out to the side. That's how he escaped from the pirates. He dove overboard and swam three or four miles to shore. Walt swings to the perch on the top of the haystack and then jumps with a whoop into the pile of hay. Yeah, but if he hadn't, he wouldn't have become a Mormon, and then we wouldn't be here. He met the Mormon missionaries on a ship he was working on, Donna continues. They were traveling from America to teach the gospel. They gave him a book of Mormon, which he read cover to cover. Then they taught him about Joseph Smith and the work the Mormons were doing in Utah. Great-grandpa decided to be baptized and went back to England to marry a girl he was promised to. Her father was a drinker, and he told great-grandpa, no daughter of mine will marry a man who can't sit down and have a drink with me. So, Grandpa William went to Idaho, and that's where he married great-grandmother, Mary Christina Ada Horn Blackmore. No one is keen to polish up the details of our favorite legends of great-grandfather William Morris Blackmore, a descendant of the wild clansmen of the nomadic tribes from the Black Moors of England. He lives on in the boundless imagination of his burgeoning posterity. Dan joins in. Great-grandpa was on the boat that killed the great whale Moby Dick. It's true, he continues. In England, there's a big sign talking about Moby Dick and listing all the sailors. His name is on it. Beyond the legends and three generations, the Blackmore name has stood for stubborn, strong will, a righteous conviction to strictly follow God's word no matter the hardship, and the bond and kinship of family and brotherhood of working together. When there was a conflict over water rights in southern, Alberta, southern Idaho, where Billy Blackmore had a homestead, he got wind of free land in Canada, where the grass was taller than the cattle, and Chinook winds blew warm in January. It took him a month to make the trip by wagon, 
and his wife with two-year-old son John and infant Edward followed on the train a few months later. Pioneer life in southern Alberta was anything but easy for them. Baby Edward died shortly after grandmother arrived at the tiny homestead cabin. Grandfather was away sharing sheep, and she was snowed in for three days in an unexpected blizzard in March. She worked feverishly to keep her babies warm, but baby Edward died in her arms as she huddled next to the stove in the drafty shack. Not long after, young John was crippled in an accident when he slipped on some ice and dislocated his leg. Grandfather got gravely ill the next year and made arrangements to send her back to Idaho to claim the farm. Determined, she told him he would not die and she would have more children. Fifteen strong sons and daughters were born, and the Blackmore household bustled with life, taking in travelers, working with the natives, and being active in the community and church. Brother John was an academic and became a teacher and politician, applying his mind where his body was insufficient. Grandpa Ray was the youngest of Billy Blackmore's eight sons and was only a toddler when his father died at 57 of a sudden attack of pneumonia. Strong, broad-shouldered boys who did competitive wrestling and played basketball tournaments around southern Alberta, the Blackmore boys ran the farm with great-grandmother. They continued to shear sheep each spring and boasted being the fastest in southern Alberta. These stories circle in my imagination when I sit over Gramsci's black and white photos of the handsome Blackmore brothers. One in particular is a serious posed photo of the staghorn wrestlers, shirts off, all muscles and youth. Young Ray Blackmore sits in the front, my young handsome grandpa. In the old barn, my daredevil cousins walk the beams, which span the open side of the barn, and they are only about five inches wide, maybe 25 feet above the hay-strewn concrete below. When the barn is almost full of hay, I also walk the beams. It's easy, but I pretend it's dangerous. My muscles tighten with the thrill. Dust particles dance in the sun, slanting through the big open doorway, making a square of light on the wood floor, polished from decades of bales stacked there by my grandfather, my uncles, and now my brothers and cousins, as well as the shuffle of many small feet, enraptured in the games of pure childhood imagination. On this hot summer day, the barn is quiet, except for the shuffle of the old sow and her fat piglets. In the lean-to at the back of the barn, the ponies stand content in the shade of the farthest corner of the meadow, sending a clear message to any potential riders that a ride will be well earned by lots of chasing and coaxing. <laughs>